Welcome back, Flick Pickers, to another episode of the My Kid Picks Retro Flicks Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Vandenberg, and with me is my kid and best buddy, Junebug. How are you doing, Junebug? Good. Did you have a good week? Yes. Good. Well, uh, did you have a good time watching our retro flick this week? Yes, I really liked um, our movie. Yeah? So let's go ahead and get things started. Which movie did we watch for this episode? Flight of the Navigator. Flight of the Navigator. And what year was Flight of the Navigator released? 1986. 1986. Really good. All right. So Flight of the Navigator stars Joey Kramer as David Freeman. That's not Joey Kramer, the drummer for Aerosmith, for those of you that may uh, be interested to hear that. Uh, Cliff DeYoung as Bill Freeman. Veronica Cartwright as Helen Freeman. Sarah Jessica Parker as Carolyn McAdams, Matt Adler as 16-year-old Jeff, and Howard Hessman as Dr. Louis Faraday. Let's do a recap. 12-year-old David Freeman loses consciousness in the woods near his Florida home and awakens eight years into the future without aging a day. Although his family is overjoyed to be reunited, they are perplexed by his appearance. When a NASA scientist discovers a UFO nearby, David gets a chance to unravel the mystery. Packed with sci-fi adventure, Flight of the Navigator is sure to keep make you keep asking, is David stuck eight years in the future? Will he ever make it home? And who is Twisted Sister? All right. Who is Twisted Sister? What did we find out about that in the movie? Um, it is a boy band. It is a boy band named Twisted Sister. And I had to, I had to play a couple of songs of theirs for you, for you to, to, uh, remember, huh? Yes. And honestly, I think Twisted Sister is a really weird name for a boy band. <laughs> well, uh, so yeah, let's uh, look back at the movie. So it starts off in 1978. And, uh, we have young David Freeman, his, uh, his little brother Jeff and his parents, David, I'm sorry, Bill and Helen. And, uh, they live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's the 4th of July. Mm-hmm. And we kind of see that David has a rough relationship with his little brother, right? Yes. They have a hard time getting along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, his brother Jeff goes to play at a friend's house. He hangs out with his parents for the afternoon and his parents send him to go and meet his brother halfway in the forest on his way home. And what happens to David while he's walking through the forest? So he's walking and then he hears a sound. <clears throat> and his little brother jumps out and scares him. And, and, um, and while he's chasing him, he finds the cliff, and his dog is barking down at the cliff. And he's like, huh. And he ends up falling into the cliff, and then, boom, he wakes up eight years in the future. Yeah, and he doesn't know that he's that, that it's eight years, right? He falls in the cliff, he, he wakes up, he heads home, and uh, the door's locked. He starts pounding on the door, and uh, who opens the door? An old granny. Yeah, some old lady in his house. And he runs inside. The furniture has changed. The decorations have changed. He runs up to what used to be his bedroom, and and the lady's husband is there. And he's really confused. So they call the police. They go to the police station, and we find out that it is now what year? 1984? Six. 
Oh, six. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so it's six years into the future. And I love the part where the detectives are uh, asking him questions and they're like, well, who's the president? And he's like, duh, Jimmy Carter. When this movie was made, it was Ronald Reagan that was president. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's really uh, kind of interesting because they're looking at his missing persons thing and he hasn't aged a day. Exactly. And he's still wearing the same clothes and everything that he was wearing when he disappeared. One thing you notice is that, um, inside, like, inside the forest, you can't, if you, if this is your first time watching it, you can tell, well, like, and if you don't know anything about it, it looks, it looks just the same. It looks like he fell into a cliff and, uh, Like, got bonked on the head or something, and or, like, or something, and, like, had a short, like, coma or fainting. Yeah, yeah, he was, it just seems like it was just one moment to the next, right? Exactly, and then, and then he gets up, the fort, and the forest is exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, the police, they drive him to a new home. One of the detectives gets out and goes and knocks on the door, and his parents answer, but they've aged. They look differently, don't they? Yes. So they take him to the hospital, and he's really confused and everything, and they, they put him into his hospital room, and everybody's talking to him, and he looks over into the corner and sees a teenage kid, and he says, who's that? And who tur- who does it turn out to be? Jimmy. Jeff. Jeff, whatever. (laughs) So his brother Jeff, who was eight years old, is now a 16-year-old kid. Yeah. And his little brother is now older than he is. It's weird. It's like my... It's like um, in the Marvel movies with the... When Thanos... With the blip? Yeah, with the blip. It's like how the kids describes it. Like, now my little brother is... I'm his uh, older little brother. Yeah, yeah, it's just exactly like that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So they're very confused and everything. In the meantime, uh, something happens with a bunch of power lines. Do you remember what happened? Um, they they go off. They go out. Like there was a UFO that crashes into them. And the power goes out. That's right. So uh, we're introduced to uh, Dr. Lewis Faraday, who is a NASA scientist, mm-hmm. and uh, he finds this UFO. And so they take it back to NASA. They don't know what to do with it. But all of a sudden, David starts hearing voices calling to him and asking him for help. And uh, so through a certain chain of events, NASA gets made aware of what uh, what's going on with David, and they go and find him. Because uh, David's mind produces a printout of what the USO looks like, or not sorry, the UFO looks like <laughs> when uh, when he's uh, when they're doing an evaluation on him, and so he, uh, Doctor Faraday, finds David and takes him to NASA. He says, "We we think we might have some answers." So they go to NASA, and uh, David meets uh, a robot. Do you remember the robot's name? No, it was uh, Ralph. Ralph, it was right. like a, a robot assisted labor or something facilitator. I can't remember. <laughs> Anyways, Ralph brings all of David his meals and everything. And Ralph is accompanied by uh, Carolyn, mm-hmm. who is played by Sarah Jessica Parker. And uh, 
So NASA starts doing their thing, and in the meantime, David keeps keeps hearing voices, right? Yes. And they're calling to him and everything. Well, uh, one time when they're doing an evaluation on him, his mind reveals to the scientists that he has been gone for eight years because it took uh, it, it, he was traveling at the speed of light uh, when this UFO abducted him. Yeah. And. Uh, so uh David has all of the star charts that the UFO uh put in his head and that's what the UFO is calling to him for. It needs to get the star charts out of his mind so that it can go home to the planet Phalon. Yeah. So uh uh the ship sends Ralph to pick up David. David sneaks away inside Ralph. They go to a big hangar where the UFO is is at and uh it, what's interesting, I think, is that the scientists up to this point, they haven't even been able to to get inside this thing. There's no way that you can get inside the UFO. And as soon as David shows up, what happens? The uh, a side of the spaceship, it looks like it's melting, and it and the melt and when it melts, it forms into stairs that David is able to get into the spaceship. Yeah. So uh, inside the uh, the the ship. Uh, we we meet. I can't pronounce the full name, uh, but uh, David ends up calling him Max. Yes. And uh, Max takes David away from NASA through a, a couple of funny things. At one point, David says, "Take us twenty miles from here," and the ship goes straight up twenty exactly. miles into <laughs> the atmosphere. <laughs> and then uh, he says, "Take us back," and then it just drops really, really fast, yes. and it stops right where it took off. I always uh, have to laugh at the NASA scientists that are on the ground and thinking how scared they must have been. As this UFO was falling to the earth and almost exactly hitting them. like, hey, this this guy is just exactly twenty feet up. Ah, yeah, yeah, it's pretty funny. So, uh, uh, they end up going on this adventure. Uh, Max ends up getting David's uh, getting the star charts out of David's head. They go on an adventure where they travel the wrong direction uh, for a while. They end up in Tokyo and uh, plus things that he shouldn't be um, hearing. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Max is voiced by Paul Rubens, who is very famous for being uh, Pee-wee from uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which is a retro flick we are definitely going to be watching yep. for this show. Uh, I've showed you some clips from Pee-wee's Playhouse, which mm-hmm. uh, I loved that show. I was telling you uh, stories about how uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse would have the word of the day. And anytime somebody said the word of the day, everybody screamed and hollered and yelled. And my parents did not like Pee-wee's Playhouse because it was a Saturday morning cartoon. And my older sisters and I would wake up early on Saturdays to go watch uh, Saturday morning cartoons. And every time they did the word of the day, the three of us would yell. And I remember our parents were trying to sleep in on a Saturday and they'd come out of their room and be like, stop yelling at the TV. (laughs) (laughs) So it was awesome. Uh, so yeah, so Max, when he scans his head, not only does he get all the star charts, he gets everything that's inside David's yes. head. So he gets a sense of humor and, uh, butt face, idiot. Yeah, he, he calls him names that, that, uh, David used to call Jeff and everything. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, they go on this adventure and, uh, through a series of events, uh, David determines that 
he doesn't want to be stuck in 1986. Max usually takes the, the, the creatures that he abducts and studies, he usually takes them back in time, but he believes that David's human body is too fragile to survive the time travel. Uh, element of getting home. And so he decides just to take him back to the reg- the new time, which is 1986. David says what to Max? Why me? Well, he does say why me, yep, and, and Max says why not. But David also tells him, I, that's my family, but it's not my home. I want to go back to 1978. And Max says, you could be evaporated. I don't know if you'll survive the pro- the, the trip. So, uh, what does David determine to do? Uh, he decides to take the risk. He takes the risk, and are they successful? Yes. Of course they're successful. It's a Disney movie. <laughs> so, they make it back to 1978. Uh, David, in the meantime, one of the creatures that was on board the ship is uh, now an orphan. His cute mm-hmm. little... I can't is remember it, what it was called. Um, it has two hands... And one foot that actually looks like its hands. Yeah, yeah. It's a cute little creature, but uh, um, his planet was destroyed, and so Max gives him to David. So David now has an alien creature, which I can only imagine the environmental impact of that. Who knows what that could do to the I ecosystem. Know. And uh, Jeff, in the end, uh, Jeff sees the little alien creature peeking out of the little backpack. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And, and David and Jeff, they kind of make amends at the end, right? And, yes. and, uh, David has a newfound respect for his brother because he knows the kind of kid that he's going to turn into. Cause Jeff ends up being a big support yeah. for David when he's in 1986. Well, cool. Uh, I, I really enjoyed watching that one with you. I, I, I fly to the navigator. I have very fond memories of watching it as a, as a kid. I remember, uh, when I was in kindergarten, I had afternoon kindergarten and I would go to my aunt's house and play with my cousins and, uh, we would watch fly to the navigator all the time. I loved that movie. It was fun watching it with you. It's a very nostalgic movie for me. Uh, that leads us to our next feature, My Kid Ransacks the Movie Snacks. Junebug, Junebug what was our uh, movie snack for the Flight of the Navigator? Uh, we had Biggs Sunflower Seeds. Yes, uh, Sunflower Seeds from the Biggs Sunflower Seed Company. Uh, what did you think about them? They were really good, honestly. Like, we had two flavors. Yeah, what were the flavors we uh, got? We had spicy chicken wings and... Hamburger. It was cheeseburger. Cheeseburger, yeah. right. And with the cheeseburger, you can actually taste the tomato, the pickle, mostly the pickle, and a few other toppings inside of a normal cheeseburger. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed them. Uh, what I like about them is we still have them now. We're still kind of munching away exactly. at them. Huh? They, they, they last a long time. Uh, I like that it was kind of an unconventional movie snack. You don't really think about uh, sunflower seeds. But uh, yeah, I think both of us preferred the cheeseburger-flavored ones more over the, the buffalo wing ones. Mm-hmm. I'm a sucker for buffalo wings. I love a really good buffalo wing. And and uh, so it, it's still really good. Don't get me wrong. But uh, yeah, I think cheeseburger for me was definitely my, my favorite between the two flavors. I can't decide between the two of them because, well, well I actually can a little bit. But with the uh, chicken wing, the buffalo wings, sorry, uh, they were they were spicy. They were pretty good, actually. 
They had a spicy aftertaste, which was probably my favorite part of them. You like that part of best? Yeah. yeah. Well, so everybody, I highly recommend the big sunflower seeds. They were wonderful. Uh, I'm sure you can find them anywhere you want uh, at any store. So, uh, well, cool. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we've got more My Kid Picks Retro Flicks for you. So don't go anywhere. Welcome back to My Kid Picks Retro Flicks. It's time for our next segment, Offset Significant Events, where we discuss things that happened the year that Flight of the Navigator was released. Junebug, do you want to start us off with our first significant event of 1986? Yes, I would... The first significant event is the invention of the little arrow that tells you what side the f- fuel filler is on. In courtesy of Jason Torchinsky? Torchinsky. Torchinsky. Wow, that's quite a name. <laughs> the unsung hero of the fuel filler dashboard arrow is a designer named Jim Moylan who worked for Ford. The idea came to Moylan in April of 1986 who had to fill up a Ford company car in the rain and was frustrated when he got soaked because he picked the wrong side. He wrote up a memo with the idea, sent it off to his bosses, and that's pretty much how it happened. The bosses saw the value in the pleasingly cheap to implement idea, and in 1989, the Ford Escort and Mercury Tracer became the first cars to have the little fuel filler location arrow. With this story so well documented, Jim Moylan is the unsung hero behind the little fuel gauge arrow. In fact, it is still known today as the Moylan Arrow. That's awesome. Yeah, I I, uh, I travel quite a bit for work sometimes, and I've been in a lot of rental cars. And that little arrow has saved my life so many <laughs> times because I'll I'll uh, have to fill up the car before I take it back to the airport. And every time I look and go, okay, what side of the car is the gas tank on? Because when, especially when you're driving a car that you're not familiar with, uh, it it's hard to keep track of where that the where which side of the car you have exactly. to put the gas in. So mm-hmm. uh, Jim Moylan, the unsung hero of the arrow, little arrow on your dashboard that tells you what side of the car your fuel filler is on. I like that. That's funny. Uh, so uh, I've got an interesting story from 1986 here. Uh, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster happened in 1986. Uh, Chernobyl is a nuclear power plant in Ukraine that was the site of a disastrous nuclear accident on April 26, 1986. Uh, this is courtesy of History.com. Uh, A routine test at the power plant went horribly wrong, and two massive explosions blew the thousand-ton roof off one of the plant's reactors, releasing 400 times more radiation than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. The worst nuclear disaster in history killed two workers in the explosions, and within months, at least 28 more would be dead by acute radiation exposure. Eventually, thousands of people would show signs of health effects, including cancer, from the fallout. The Chernobyl disaster not only stoked fears over the dangers of nuclear power, it also exposed the Soviet government's lack of openness to the Soviet people and the international community. The meltdown and its aftermath drained the Soviet Union of billions in cleanup costs, led to the loss of primary energy source, and dealt a serious blow to national pride. Then Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev would later say that he thought the Chernobyl meltdown, even more than my launch of Perestroika, was perhaps the real cause of the collapse of the Soviet Union five years later. 
So Chernobyl is uh, it's located in northern Ukraine, uh, about 80 miles north of Kiev. In uh, so there's a small town called uh, Pripyat, which was constructed a few miles from the site of the nuclear plant to accommodate the workers and their families. So they were doing a routine exercise on uh, April 26th. It caused all sorts of problems. Uh, the problem was they didn't follow appropriate protocols. They didn't evacuate things in time. So uh, they didn't even evacuate uh, Pripyat until almost a day later. Uh, so aside from the sight of the trucks cleaning the streets with foam, there were initially few signs of the disaster unfolding just miles away. Uh, it wasn't until the next day, April 27th, when the government began evacuation uh, of Pripyat's 50,000 residents. So 50,000 people were uh, wow. exposed to uh, to this radiation. Uh, the Soviet uh, Union, they tried to keep it under wraps. Uh, it took days for them to tell the international community about what had occurred. Uh, the damaged plant released a large quantity of radioactive substances, including iodine-131, cesium-137, plutonium, and strontonium-90 into the air for a period of over 10 days. Uh, the radioactive cloud was deposited nearby as dust and debris, but was also carried by wind over the Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, Scandinavia, and other parts of Europe. Uh, I was reading also in this story the the people that were exposed to the radiation. They said it made their mouths taste taste like metal as they were being exposed to it. Uh, so the damaged plant. Re, uh, uh, I wonder um, if, like how you said with it made their mouths taste like metal. Uh-huh. I wonder how, if that's like how uh Marie Curie felt because she was the one who discovered radioactive rays. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I wonder if she tasted that same thing as she was being exposed to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Uh, so, uh, they, um, they did the best they could to clean it up, but, uh, because it was such a disaster, uh, Chernobyl is still to this day empty. Uh, so Ukraine's government declared in 1995 that 125,000 people had died from the effects of Chernobyl radiation. A 2005 report from the United Nations, uh, Chernobyl Forum estimated that while fewer than 50 people were killed in the months following the accident, up to 9,000 people could eventually die from excess cancer deaths linked to radiation exposure from Chernobyl. Uh, as of 2005, according to the United, the, I'm sorry, the Union of Concerned Scientists, some 6,000 thi- uh, thyroid cancers and 15 thyroid cancer deaths had been attributed to Chernobyl. So it really caused a lot of problems. Uh, like I said, uh, it's still kind of a disaster there. Apart from the ever-unfolding human toll from the disaster, the Chernobyl accident also left behind a huge area of radiation-tainted land. A 770-mile-wide Chernobyl exclusion zone around the site isn't considered safe for human habitation and can't be used for logging or agriculture due to contaminated plants and soil. By 2017, however, entrepreneurs found a new use for the territory. In December 2017, a Ukrainian-German company, Solar Chernobyl, announced construction of a massive solar power plant in the abandoned territory. The one-megawatt power plant, built just a few hundred feet from the damaged Reactor 4, was fitted with 3,800 photovoltaic panels. So it's now a solar farm. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Ukrainian government said that a collection of companies plan to eventually develop up to 99 more megawatts of solar power at the site. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, that's that's a lot of power, uh, but still not close to the former output of the re- the ruined nuclear power plant. Uh, power plant. At the time of the accident, Chernobyl's four reactors could generate 1,000 megawatts each. Wow. Uh, meanwhile, uh, wildlife, including boars, wolves, beavers, and bison, showed signs of flourishing at the Chernobyl site, according to an April 2016 study. The researchers pointed out that while radiation exposure couldn't be good for the animals, the benefits of the absence of humans outweighed radiation risk. <laughs> so uh, that just shows how bad human beings are for animals, that they're, they're better off in a, a radioactive zone than uh, exactly. around us. Uh, humans, on the other hand, aren't expected to repopulate the area anytime soon. Ukrainian authorities have said it will not be safe for people to live in the Chernobyl exclusion zone for more than 24,000 years. Wow. Uh, today, tourists can visit the site, which appears frozen in time, apart from signs of looting, natural weathering, and the encroachment of nature. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. I watched a documentary about it, and anytime you go in there, you have to wear a machine called a Geiger counter that measures how much radiation you're exposed to. And uh, there are people that uh, once they reach a certain limit, they're no longer allowed to go into the exclusion zone. So, uh, yeah, that uh, Chernobyl, I, I, I don't have a lot of memories of it when it happened, but growing up, that was always the, the big reason why everybody pointed out to me, don't trust the Soviets because they hid a nuclear disaster from everybody. So, uh, really interesting. Uh, Junebug, I see you have an article about a famous celebrity. Tell yes. us about it. Um, it is the um, it is about Oprah, the Oprah Winfrey show. Um, in courtesy of also also in courtesy of History dot com. On September eighth, nineteen eighty six, the Oprah Winfrey show is broadcast nationally for the first time. A huge success, her daytime television talk show turns Winfrey into one of the most powerful wealthy people in show business and arguably one of the most influential women in America. Winfrey, who was born in Mississippi to a poor, unwed teenage mother on January 29, 1954, began her TV career as a local news anchor in Nashville and Baltimore before moving to Chicago in 1984 to host a low-rated morning talk program. She quickly turned the show into a ratings winner, beating out a popular talk program hosted by Phil Donahue at the urging of the Chicago-based movie critic Robert Ebert. Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert. Winfrey signed a syndication deal with King World, and the Oprah Winfrey Show was broadcast nationally for the first time on September 8, 1986. It went on to become the highest-rated talk show in TV history. Providing that talk show host wasn't the only role she could play. Winfrey made her big-screen debut as Sophia in director Steven Spielberg's The Color Purple. The film earned Winfrey a Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination. In addition to TV and and film, Winfrey became a true media module. Mogul. Mogul, branching out to books and magazines, radio, musical theater, and the web. 
In 2008, the Oprah Winfrey Show had an estimated weekly audience of some 46 million viewers in the United States and was broadcast around the world in 134 countries. Winfrey wields enormous influence when it comes to promoting products. A recommendation on our show could turn a book, movie, or just about anything else into a bestseller. A phenomenon that has been dubbed the Oprah Effect. The show ended in May 2011, several months after Winfrey launched the Oprah Winfrey Network. Yeah, so uh, Oprah Winfrey, she uh, she was always present uh, when I was a kid. I just remember her talk show was on all the time. And uh, yeah, it, they talk about the Oprah effect, and that's a real thing. Uh, she had her, her, she would go on and talk about a book, and that book would be a bestseller. Uh, two of her most famous guests went on to be huge themselves, uh, Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz. Uh, so Oprah, yeah, she is the queen of all media. She just runs a media like crazy. And uh, anything she touches turns to gold. So, yeah, it was interesting to know that her show debuted in 1986. Uh, all right. Uh, I, I didn't know all that about Oprah and Free. Uh, um, I've got a story here about a, a really bad idea. Uh, this is courtesy of Rare Historical Photos. Uh, in 1986, charity organization United Way of Cleveland thought they had the perfect idea to generate a little publicity and create a beautiful spectacle in the process, an attempt to set a new world record for simultaneously released balloons. With a huge crowd of volunteers working frantically for days, 1.5 million helium balloons were filled and placed under an enormous net. On September 27, 1986, the day of the that the stunt arrived, uh, though the organizers ultimately released the balloons earlier than previously planned due to a rainstorm that was fast approaching that day. At 1.50 p.m., nearly 1.5 million balloons were let go and rose up from Cleveland's public square surrounding Terminal Tower. And you and I were looking at pictures yes. of this. It is just a disaster. I there know. are balloons everywhere. Think about all of like the animals that would be eating that yeah. stuff. Yeah, and we're going to talk and, about like, a little bit of that here. And some of the balloons actually fell into the lake. Uh huh. So, yeah, we're going to read about that here. So some of the animals may have eat, like fish may have eaten them. And if they ate plastic, then if we made sushi out of them we could be eating <laughs> that's true so with the balloons free the thinking was that they would all stay in the air until fully deflating and returning to earth regretfully that's not what ended up happening however after being let go the floating spheres of colorful helium-filled latex collided with a front of cool air and rain causing them to fall back down towards the ground still inflated the more than one million balloons dropped back down to earth, littering the land and clogging waterways all over northeast Ohio. Not only that, many of the balloons consequently washed ashore on the Canadian side of Lake Erie the following several days afterward. A number of the balloons landed on a pasture in Medina County, Ohio, which spooked some Arabian horses owned by a woman, Louise Nowakowski, and reportedly led to injuries to the to the horses. Nowakowski subsequently sued United Way for $100,000 worth of damages, and the matter was settled under undisclosed terms. In the worst consequence to come from the disaster, though, was when the balloons inadvertently impeded a search and rescue of two vanished fishermen. 
The missing men, Raymond Broderick and Bernard Sulzer, had been reported missing uh, had been reported missing the day the event had taken place. Although their 16-foot boat was located and anchored west of the Edgewater Park uh, break wall, the Coast Guard search and rescue crews were not able to find them. Since there were so many balloons scattered around, rescuers couldn't distinguish between a balloon or a person. On September 29th, the Coast Guard suspended its search, and the bodies of both men subsequently washed ashore days later. The wife of one of the men later sued United Way of Cleveland and the company that organized the event, a suit that was settled on undisclosed terms. In the end, the event did lead to a new world record being broken, but it didn't go off without a hitch. If there's one thing this tragic event proved, was that even the most harmless of actions and the best of intentions can lead to a disastrous outcome. Yes. All right. That was a lot of fun. I, I, I like researching those stories with you. It's, it's fun to go through that and go, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember that. And a lot of these things, like the Cleveland Balloon Fest, uh, I hadn't thought about it in years. All right, let's take another break. Uh, when we come back, we've got some more trivia for you, so don't go anywhere, Flick Pickers. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, time for Retro Flicks Fun Facts. We search the internet for movie facts to impress your friends so that you don't have to. Uh, I'll kick it off for us this time. So principal photography for Flight, of the Navi- for Flight of the Navigator began 4th of December of 1985 for 10 weeks in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The picture was budgeted for $17.5 million and was a co-production with Viking Film in Norway. Its worldwide gross was $18,564,613. It was released in theaters on August 3rd, 1986. That is a lot of money. (laughs) The ship used in the movie used to be... In a boneyard at the Disney Studios theme park at Walt Disney World in Florida, where it was an exhibit for the back lot tour. Yeah, it used to be there, and then I'm going to show you what happened to the ship here in just a little bit. But uh, yeah, you used to go on what was a back lot tour, and they had like all the cars and spaceships and different things like that from all the movies, and uh, you could see the the ship there. And after a while, it started getting rusty and, and kind of broken down and stuff. So we'll talk about where it is now uh, here in just a little bit. Uh, so it was Paul Rubin's idea to make the identity of the actor providing the voice of Max a mystery, and he was credited as Paul Mall. So if you uh, look at the credits in the movie, it doesn't say Paul Rubens, it says Paul Mall. One of the prop holes was refurbished and is now the topper of a drink station in Tomorrowland at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. Yeah, so Magic Kingdom in Orlando, and I'm going to show you a picture of it. So they dressed it up to look like a different kind of spaceship. They painted it red, and now it's on top of a drink station at Disney World. (laughs) That's pretty cool, huh? Yeah. Yeah, there's a a few pictures of it uh, here on, uh, I'm looking at uh, Walt Disney World News today. Uh, It's kind of cool to see the the ship up there. Um, I'm trying to find a good angle to show you, but you can see that looks like, you know, how the front of the ship is and stuff. Yeah. So uh, pretty cool. So, yeah, it is now a drink station at Walt (laughs) Disney World. 
Uh, so when Max and David stop behind the car to ask for directions, the song heard in the car is a fragment of Trapped in My Mind, an obvious parody of The Cure's A Man Inside My, a Man Inside My Mouth, uh, composed by David Kate and Guy Moon and performed by Kate himself specifically for the movie. A full version of the song does not exist. So that silly song that the people in the convertible are listening to, that's not even a real song. They made it just for the movie. And, um, David said it was uh, Twisted Sister, right? Uh, yeah, he says, oh, maybe, maybe that's that Twisted Sister stuff that Carolyn was telling me about because he had no idea what it was. <laughs> but it was funny because uh, Max was like, were those geeks, David? Yes, Max, those were geeks because they were listening to that music that he wasn't used to. <laughs> All right, what, what's the next one you have there for us? The loud belch made by the Garpuntel who devoured... So David's NASA hat in is actually the dubbed in sound of actor Joey Kramer belching slow, slow down slightly to sound deeper and longer. Yeah. So the belch that that monster makes after it eats his hat, that was actually the actor that played David uh, burping and they just changed the audio. Uh in a 2019 documentary about the film, Veronica Cartwright, uh, who played David's mom, recalled a chance encounter that she had with her co-star, Matt Adler, who played the role of older Jeff. On Halloween 2007, only seven months after moving into her present home, Cartwright answered her door to a trick-or-treater and was surprised to find Adler and his young son standing on her front doorstep. Cartwright said she and Adler had not seen one another since the time the movie was filmed, almost 22 years earlier. So what a cool uh, chance yeah. encounter. When Max and David escape the NASA facility, they travel precisely 20... 20 miles from the point of origin in, in approximately 35 seconds, making their speed about 2,057 miles per hour. Ooh, that's fast. No wonder David was squished down into his chair. <laughs> Uh, the, the, so two of the new box toys seen on David's bed that he has given as gifts at NASA are a Cobra water moccasin from the G.I. Joe toy line and the Transformers, uh, in section shrapnel. Also present is a speak and spell, which fans of E.T. the extraterrestrial will recognize as a component of the uh, jury rigged communicator seen in that movie. Hmm. When David enters the spaceship in the NASA hang, hangar, the camera pans to the ground and shows a and shows a rectangular tile with a very particular symbol the flux capacitator from the back to the future movie another time travel related movie released in the previous year 19 85. Yeah, so the flux capacitor, the thing that makes time travel possible, if you look really carefully in the warehouse where the ship is stored, you can see it. That's really cool. Uh, the host of The Price of Right on TV is Bob Barker. Uh, he hosted the show until June of 2007. When David and Max take off from Al's gas station, Al says to the tourist, he said he just wanted to phone home. This is a clear reef. Reference to E.T. Yeah, because uh, E.T. wanted to phone home, right? Exactly. All right, it's fun to go back and find all that interesting stuff about Flight of the Navigator. Uh, let's move on to our new feature, People That Make It Possible. 
We pick a behind-the-scenes job in filmmaking and explain it. For this episode, we've chosen the costume designer. The costume designer for Flight of the Navigator was Mary Lou Bird. She's been in the costume department of the following movies. The Punisher, Speed 2 Cruise Control, Cocoon the Return, Revenge of the Nerds 2 Nerds in Paradise, and The Heavenly Kid. Junebug, tell everyone what the costume designer does. The costume is at the core of a film or TV drama, as well as contributing to the look. It helps actors feel emotionally connected to the character they are playing through wearing the character's clothes. Costume designers design, create, and hire the costumes for the cast. They start by working with directors, producers, writers, and the producer. Oh wait, the produce production designer and hair and makeup designer to contribute to the look and storytelling of the production. They research, sketch, and draw mood boards of characters and clothes to communicate the style. They then break down the script, working out what they need to create or hire, working within tight budgets and deadlines. They recruit a team, organize a schedule of purchases, and ensure the costumes are created on time for fittings. With the help of the team, they schedule fittings and take photographs. These are then discussed with the producer and director and signed off. Once shooting stars, they are always on set whenever there are new actors or new looks. Yeah, so costumes are really uh, important, especially like in this movie. People were wearing, you know, normal clothes that you would wear in Florida. There wasn't any, like, very special costumes. But you think about it, throughout that movie, David wears the same clothes through most of it. He wears those jeans, tennis shoes, that polo shirt. And what a lot of people don't realize is they probably have dozens of those jeans and dozens of those polo shirts hanging up in a warehouse somewhere just in case David tears one of the shirts or or the jeans or the shoes get scuffed up really bad or something and it's it's a really important job to keep people costumed and they've got a job a, a really important job of uh, tracking what's called continuity where if a character has had the buttons ripped off of their shirt as part of the movie they have to provide a shirt with buttons missing on it for the rest of the movie mm-hmm. or if a, somebody's sleeve gets ripped off in part of the movie they have to provide costumes that have that too so Costuming is a really important job, uh, and it, it's fun to watch. Uh, you know, this is kind of a, a, a movie where there weren't any special costumes. People wore normal clothes through most of it. But you think of movies like The Lord of the Rings, where you've got all sorts of armor that people mm-hmm. are wearing and, and things and, like that. And it's like, oh, like, um, in like encyclopedias or something, pictures of cavemen, um, when they get more like us, they are wearing clothes more like the people in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that's right. So uh, it's a really important job, and so our hat goes off to the costume designer. Uh, it's amazing to think that it takes so many people to make a successful movie. Uh, thanks for teaching us about the costume designer, Junebug. You're welcome. All right, so let's take another quick break. When we come back, Junebug is going to give her rating of Flight of the Navigator. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Flick Pickers. All right, Junebug, let's get your final take on Flight of the Navigator. What did you like about the movie? I really liked everything. Um, 
it it was really funny. Like, um, after the spaceship gets the things from David's head, he's going all silly. Like, really silly. Like, he starts laughing like uh, Pee-wee in Pee-wee's Playhouse. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I had a, like I said, I, I've got a lot of good memories attached to Flight of the Navigator. It's one of the kind of hidden gems of Disney movies that came out in the 80s that a lot of people don't uh, think about too often. Uh, but for me, it just, it takes me back to some fun times that I had as a little kid. All right, what rating would you give Flight of the Navigator? I am going to do four out of five spaceships. Four out of five spaceships for Flight Sorry, five of five out of five. Whatever. Five out of five. All right, well, that's a big difference right there. So five out of five spaceships for Flight of the Navigator. All right, I had a great time hanging out with you and watching our movie. I'm looking forward to the next one. Uh, sadly, it's time to wrap things up on this episode of My Kid Picks Retro Flicks. I'd like to thank Age of Radio for making this podcast possible. For more information, visit ageofradio.com. Shout out to Nick Borrego for composing our music and to Big Sunflower Seeds for for providing the movie snacks. Until next time, I'm your host, Nate Vandenberg, reminding you, see you later, Navigator. (laughs) Send us off, Junebug. Was this movie, Dad, was this movie made in the 1900s? All right, we'll see you next time.